Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest today is Les Isaac, founder of Street Pastors. Les, welcome to Facing the Canon. Thank you, John. Oh, we, we were just reminiscing, weren't we, that we first connected, met each other, oh, several decades ago at the Evangelist Conference. That's right, that's right. Those were the days. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the days, my friend. <laughs> now, where were you born, Les? Well, I was born in a little island in the Caribbean called Antigua, which is famous for cricket. Sir Biff Richards and all those guys. So small little paradise, 108 square mile, and 365 beaches. Oh, my word. When you were a little boy, you your parents were already, they came over to England to explore, yeah. didn't they? Yeah. I, I, you know, in those days, back in the 60s, early 60s, um, a lot of Caribbeans were coming, late 50s, early 60s, coming here because... Um, Enoch Powell actually toured the Caribbean and said to people, look, come, we need nurses, we need people to work on the transport. And my parents, who used to travel around the islands, thought, let's go to England. My mother came, then my father, let's work for a few years, and then let's go back home. That was the intention. Didn't quite work like that. So after three years, um, they, in fact, they left us with my grandparents, myself and my brother. They sent for us and we came to England. 1965. But there's the story, Les, you went to church, came home and then be then told you're going to England tonight. <laughs> it I mean, was that's traumatic for a little boy. Very traumatic, extremely traumatic. It, it was a day where they, in our culture, it was children are seen but not heard. And so, you know, you couldn't ask questions, you couldn't be inquisitive. So we went to church, you know, it's a good Methodist, went to church, after church, lunch, and then we were told, well, you know, have a shower and you're traveling on the plane. And I'm thinking, wow. And so for me, you know, that was Sunday afternoon. Sunday morning, you know, I was in a cold. So I left the sun, the heat, and I came to the freezer, to the fridge. And I didn't say goodbye to any of my school friends, to my teachers, to my class, to my relatives. It was extremely traumatic for me. In fact, I wanted to run away after a few weeks of being in England. And quite a culture shock for you when you were at school. Yeah. It yeah. was tough. It was tough. It was the first culture shock that I had, John, was extraordinary because we were taught in, in our community that we had to say good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to anyone, and especially to people who are older than yourself. That was Manners, respect, those two things were right at the forefront. So I remember walking out my home and, you know, I saw someone, I said, good morning, and they completely blanked me. I thought, oh, perhaps they didn't hear. So the next person said, good morning, and they just totally walked past. I thought, wow, this is strange. But I think the worst culture shock for me was an experience was I went to school, primary school, and all of a sudden I discovered I was black. Now, my parents forgot to tell me that. <laughs> but you can imagine, you know, in school, and sometimes children could be very spiteful and say all sort of things. But it was, I knew it was something derogatory in terms of the terms that they were using. And I remember feeling confused because I've never had to deal with anything to do with my pigmentation or my culture. I've never had to deal with that in my young life, and my, you know, short life then. And yet it was really in front of me. 
and I think the third thing that really tipped me over the edge was three boys, three young white boys were chasing me in the school playground. And I ran to the teacher for sort of help. And the teacher sort of just pushed me off and these guys kicked me and punched me. And I couldn't believe it because back in the Caribbean, teachers were held in such great esteem. And I remember going home and I thought I was going to get a sympathetic ear from my mother. And I told her, she said, you must have been naughty. Yes, because she couldn't process the fact. She couldn't process the fact. So I was confused. Um, I was traumatized. And I suppose for me, it wasn't a really good experience as a child. And sadly, a year and a half as we came to this country after we arrived, my father left my mother. So, you know, it was culture, racism, you know, traumatic experiences, father leaving uh, my family. And I really had a sense of what in the world is going on. Very traumatic. Started to harden your heart. Maybe that would be a phrase, wouldn't it? Very much so, very much so. In fact, as a young age, I began to ask questions. And again, because I couldn't speak to my mother and because I couldn't, you know, there wasn't a space created for me to ask questions, it was things were internally building up. So anger, frustration, <clears throat> disillusionment. And I remember I went to church. And when I went to church, my Methodist church, and in fact, I came to the conclusion that there was more life in my local cemetery than in my church. It was so boring. You know, it was extremely boring. But I looked up on the, you know, and I saw Jesus, and he was white, blonde, had blue eye. And I thought, how comes Jesus looks like the people who hate me? Yes. And so it really traumatized me further because... In religion, we're supposed to be a safe space and a place of acceptance. I was having difficulties in society, at home. Um, It was a very traumatic time for me, which it was a recipe for chaos, which later sort of manifested itself. So the the church should have been helping you, but it was hindering you. Yeah, very much so. Uh, The story of your your life, oh my word, this picture at the front. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So as you got older, dreadlocks, tell yeah. us about that. It was interesting. Well, it was obvious because there was a lot of things happening. And one of the things I, I say to people in the church today, you know, as someone who's an evangelist, someone who's a preacher, I say, look, you've got to read society. And unless your message is relevant and you could contextualize your message, you're going to miss a lot of people. And so I was going through an identity crisis. I had a lot of questions. I had questions about myself, my history. I had questions about religion. Who was Jesus? Is Christianity a white man's religion? And at the same time, there were um, a lot of things happening in America in the, in the 60s. You know, there was a Malcolm X, Angela Davis, Elder Cleaver. There was Martin Luther King and all these things. And there was yeah. music. So all these things were throwing out voices, volume, very loud. And yet the, the Christians, the church, my church, my family weren't saying anything about these things that I was thinking about. And so for me, I remember going out and I heard about this guy called Emperor Haile Selassie. Yes. And it was really extraordinary because Selassie was made emperor in 1935 or so. And he took upon him the title of Kings of Kings, Lord of Lords, Conquer Lion of the Tribe of Judah. And so, you know, and part of the whole image and picture was 
you know, the guy in Jamaica, Marcus Garvey, was talking about that Rastafarianism was birthed. So Rastafarian talked about identity, you know, it talks about a promised land, hope, it talked about liberation. And these were all the questions, all the things that I was thinking about. And so there was a message there for me. I felt rejected from this society that I was living in. I felt accepted in that scene. So obviously, you know, I started not combing my hair. Um, <laughs> to my parents, to my mother, that was, you know, that was crazy because that was a cultural norm that no, no, no. She was a respectable Christian going to church. And so it, there was a conflict there, but I rebelled. And I started to believe in Selassie. I wanted to move out, you know, to Ethiopia. I wanted to leave England. And obviously with Selassie came all the, and Rastafarians came all the drugs, the beliefs and all that. I read the Bible. I read the Bible. I read most of the Old Testament. And yet in that moment, I was still finding that there was something deeply missing in my life. Your mother died. Yeah. Well, relatively my, young and, yeah. and your father moved back in. Yeah, my mother died. It was interesting because when I went through that process, in the midst of that, my mother died. But in the midst of all of these things, I was searching for deep spiritual meaning. So Rastafarian was, was attractive. I began to read the Bible, but I read the Old Testament, not the New Testament, because I was struggling with it. My mother died, it made me question, is there life after death, what happens, you know? Um, it's trauma again, bereavement again. And my father decided to move back in and there was conflict. Yes. You know, there was conflict. And I said to my dad, listen, dad, um, I'm a Rasta, I don't believe in violence, but I'll kill you. Yes. And um, I was gonna buy a machete to kill my father. But during the course of that day, I met this guy, yes. this African guy, and I was inquisitive. What you do? Was you know, he called Amos? Amos. Amos. That's, that's the guy. He was called Amos. I said, "What you do?" And he just said, "Well, I've been studying here theology." Okay, I thought, okay. Um, I'm from Nigeria, so my ear propped up. Tell me about Africa. He didn't tell me about Africa. He spoke about Jesus, and that was incredible. He spent ten minutes with me or so. But that evening, as I was walking home, it's as if I was hearing, literally I was hearing voice saying, my son died for you, not Selassie. My son, death on the cross, means you can be forgiven of your sin. And I'm thinking, wow, no man, I haven't smoked for a long time, <laughs> you know? It was just so real. It was so, so real. And I remember going to a club and 3.30 in the morning, you know, I heard this voice again. What are you doing here? You don't belong here. And that really spoke to me in a very powerful way. And I thought, cool, my, my ganja was, must have been strong tonight. <laughs> yes. um, but it was interesting because again, uh, two weeks later, I met another guy on my way near Chalk Farm, near the Roundhouse, in, near Regent's Park. And this guy began to speak to me about Jesus. And he quoted from the old King James Version, there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but at the end there for the ways of death. And I went with my friend, we were smoking, and there was nothing I could think about but those scriptures. God was speaking to me. God spoke to me in the nightclub. And it was strange, because when I became a Christian, I thought, what was God doing in a nightclub at 3.30 in the morning? He was looking for me. 
looking for you. He was looking for me. So in the midst of this kind of culture battle, um, um, confusion over citizenship, Antigua, England, there's this call light from heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. That's right. And this is how it works. This is how it works. This is how it works. And 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 you you know I say to people all the time, so many people are coming from confusion, you know, hurts and pain. You know, allow God to walk with them through their pain, because for me there was layers upon layers, and it was strange. It was confusing. I was asking questions, but it was interesting that before I even went to church. God was giving me clarity about him. And I remember one evening I went home after Amos spoke to me and said, and I said, God, look, I don't believe in this white man, Jesus, but if you're real, help me. Tears came from my eyes. It's as if a burden was lifted away. All the things that I did wrong, I just felt all of those were just oozing away from me. I felt totally liberated. That I'm not sure how long I was on my knees, but when I woke, when I got up, I thought, let me take these drugs out, and I threw it through the window. I don't need this. Let me get all my lux cut off. I don't need this no more. I'm, so, not, I'm not defined by my lux. I knew that something deep within me now was saying to me, it's not these external, it's what I am in you and what I've made you. So you felt it that straight away, that I always sense it. of uh, cleansing and healing. Yes. You felt it. I felt it. The cleansing, the healing. In fact, I saw creation in a different light. I looked out my window and it's like a different world. It was extraordinary. You were born again. I was born again. I couldn't put it in the word I was, I was born again, but I knew that something had happened to me. And then your attitudes, actions began to change. That's right. And, and for me, that was significant, that my perspective of life, my perception of people, my attitude, my character, my personality. You know, I just feel, I don't want to smoke no more. You know, I don't want to do this no more. And it's not because someone told me, it's because I realized that, hey, I I want to live to please God. I said to my friends, listen, I'm not sure what's happening, but I want to discover more about this Jesus. Yes. Who's touched my life. I need to discover more about him. And the interesting thing, uh, Les, is, uh, you know, we often talk about experiencing the Holy Spirit, but we we seem to emphasise and focus on spirit rather than holy. Mm. The holiness of God in us cleanses, doesn't... Incredible. Because, you know, I was living with my girlfriend. I said, I can't live with you no more. I said, I can't live with you no more because, you know, God's dancing my life and I just need to be righteous before him. That's before I went to church. You know, before I went to church, I knew that this was something that was extraordinary in my life, something that was far beyond my imagination. So I really wanted to understand. And part of that was for me to live a life where I'm pleasing God. And I knew there were things in my life that I had to just walk away from because I wanted to please God. Well, the Lord has since led you on in many different ways and he's used you. Wow, where do we begin to tell the story (laughs) of, oh my word, the street pastors. Yeah. The the street pastors. Where did that idea come from? Tell us this story. Yeah, it was interesting because I was 
at the office of the Evangelical Alliance when it was in Kennington. And I had a phone call from a journalist who said to me, uh, Les, you know, what's the problem with society today? Is it poverty? Is it, you know, parenting? What is, is it lack of education? And he was asking me the question for a quote for a newspaper. And, and I said, and I gave him some story. I can't remember what I said, but I felt that I was styling it out. I was telling him something that I didn't really believe. So after I got off the phone, I said, hey, let me look at the problems. And I began to research the problem. I began to speak to the police. I began to speak to local authorities. I began to speak to youth peop young people. I began to walk the streets at 12 o'clock at night, one o'clock in the morning, to talk to people. And I realized that there was a massive gap between what I was doing as a Christian and the people I was trying to reach and another group of people. Yeah nocturnal people, people when we're in bed having our drinking chocolate, they're out, they're alive, they're buzzing. And so then I went to Jamaica, and I went to Jamaica because Jamaica had more church per square mile than any other country in the world, and yet they had the second highest homicide rate. Yes. So I went to Jamaica to look at what the churches were doing in that context, and I saw some extraordinary work by local pastors. Pastors was in areas that were, had a lot of gang problem, gun problem, and they had respect from those young people. Why? Because they were there. I came back to England, and I remember sharing with Roger Forsters yeah. and those guys, and saying, look, um, I think we need to do something, and I want to explore some more. So I went on the streets in Manchester, and at 12 o'clock, I met eight-year-old on the street talking about bulletproof vests. I saw 15-year-old girls, talking, I said to one young girl, you're intelligent, you're articulate, you're very pretty, why are you here? She said, you're the first person that ever told me that. And that really stirred my heart. When I spoke to the police, they said, the church is the answer. When I spoke to local government, they said, the church is the answer. When I spoke to young people, they said, where's the church? Everyone was looking for the church, but the church had gone to bed. Yes. And so, after seeing that, I spoke to a police command and I said, tell me the most difficult time within the 24-hour cycle. And they said to me, the most difficult time was from 2 p.m. in the afternoon until 5 to 6 in the evening. Wow. That's what they said. And I said, why is that? He said, crime rate amongst young people. That's what he said. And it's still the challenge today. Um, and... I couldn't get people to volunteer in the afternoon to do school pastors, but I got people to go out. He said the second most difficult time is between 10 and 12 p.m. And the height of the busy period troubles is between one o'clock and four o'clock in the morning. People are leaving clubs, people are going to the kebab shops, people are going to get a taxi. So I said, okay, let's get people to go in the night, 10 to four. And myself and a detective who used to work with Operation Trident, called Ian Critchlow, and a guy called Reverend David Chassonier, who was a Baptist minister. And we met, <clears throat> and we planned, and we talked, and we said, what does the street need? And I remember in my front room, I said, well, <clears throat> there's a lot of problem on the street. They need a pastor. Yes. And I said, no, 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 we're not, I'm not talking about ordination. I'm talking about shepherd, carer. They need somebody there where they are to care for them. And then Ian said, well, they need protocols, they need a uniform, they need to be trained well. And 
and he talked about the safety. Then David said, let's talk about the sacredness and the sanctity of the human life. Let's talk about valuing and honoring the community. Let's talk about the fact that the human life is sacred. And, and we just, we built something and it was in that front room, street passes with birth. So I invited church leaders from across London to meet in a Baptist church. 300 turned up from right across the denomination. And I said, look, I brought police guys, I brought council, I brought all sorts of people. I said, we want to put people on the streets. We want to go out where the problems are. Out of those 300 church leaders, only two of them and two ladies, two ladies volunteered from those, all those ministers. So you gave them all the opportunity yes, to join you. To join. And they heard the vision. That's right. But only two, two. turned up. In fact, what happened, we recruited 18 people. 15 of them were women. <laughs> only three guys. The women are the ones, aren't they? <laughs> the men were at home, when I say, doing a mental risk assessment. But the women came, second-year medical students came, you know, grandma came, you know, mom, single mom who lives on a council estate, she came. And they came, and we went out on the streets together to patrol in fours. And how long ago was that? That's 20 years ago. 20 years ago. To the day. This is the month. But it's grown. It's grown. It's grown. And how many street pastors come under this in England? Well, in England, we have something like 240 outlets across the United Kingdom, from the Shetlands all the way down to Canterbury, down to Plymouth, you know. Um, we've got them all over. And, and global as well. And as far as Australia, America, Nigeria, and the Caribbean, um, we have them. And we have different shapes of people doing it. It's street passes in its, um, in its shape, but not in its name. So it's been extraordinary how God has really sort of pushed us out. It's a simple concept, and yet it's so dynamic. So instead of the church and church pastors saying, come to us, we'll come to you. We're going to them. We're going to come to you. We're going to be out in the community and to help you in whatever way we can. Listen, I've spoken to so many people on the street. You know, we used to talk about cold contacts people who don't know nothing and it's difficult that you've got to build up, you know, to get them to the point of Jesus. People come up to us and they say, mate, who are you? We said, we're the church. And they say, which one? And we say, all of them, because we've worked right across the denominations, people volunteer. Then they say, how long will you be doing this for? We said, as long as Jesus wants us here, we're going to be doing it. And then they say, do you get paid for this? And we say, no. And I can't repeat what they say. No, they okay. just can't believe it. They can't, they believe, can't believe, it. believe it. And this is like in the middle of the night. In you the know, middle of the when night. When you guys should be at home, in yes, bed. The what middle are you of doing night. here? And many of them says, come on, buy you a drink. Or here's a donation. Yeah. And we said, we don't need it. Yeah. And we talk. And people say, look, my nan's died. Where's she gone? Um, I've yes. been searching. I'm a backslider. The amount of people we've prayed with and for the amount of people who have come to know Jesus out of those relationships. We've spoken to the nightclub managers. We've spoken to the door staff. And they've said, come in. The nightclub have given us 500 bottles of water. Say, look, you guys are doing it. How can we support you in what you're doing? Anytime you want tea, coffee, or whatever, come. 
you're doing something great. And we've had a chance to really talk and pray with people because we say to people, listen, we're out here as a Christian. We have a holistic approach. We're caring, we're listening, we're helping, but we've got Jesus and we have the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. And people readily ask us, so what do you believe? Yes, because they're, they're open. Yes. They're receptive. Yes. And the fact that you're there yes. in the middle of the night on their terms. On their term. They'll on their listen. Term. They'll listen. And, and fascinating, Les, that the secular media pick the story up of what you're doing <laughs> rather than the Christian media, yeah. isn't it? And you, it was like broadcast. They, yeah. they almost like can't believe it. Yeah, they can't believe it. That well, you're cleaning the streets that's by correct. helping people. That's right. I think there's two aspects of that, John. One, the, the non-Christians are always fascinated when they see Christians and they say, what's the agenda? Yes, yeah, what's the motive? What's the motive? And I say to them, here's a commandment of Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. You've got to love people. Yeah. And we're loving, and we're loving people by demonstrating that we care. We're part of this community, so we are contributing to this community. The second thing is what I realized, that the church never you know, never pick it up anything until after the, the world has seen it. One guy said to me, oh, I didn't really think much about you guys until I saw you in the Guardian newspaper or I saw you on BBC program. I said, man, God is doing something. That's why sometimes we miss the church, the revival, what God is doing, because we're too late in picking up on what God is doing. But I'm excited because the church has got it and it's, cred it's given the church credibility in terms of its contribution to the well-being of society. Absolutely. And as your other book says, faith on the streets. Yeah. It, it's an active faith. Yeah. And, and seeing that transforming faith in other people's lives, isn't it? Very much so. I say to people all the time, I preach to lots of people, big crowds, small crowds, I yeah. preach. But I get excited of a night when I've got, you know, four men there. And they're, you know, they're saying, well, what about this? What about that? And I've got the opportunity to reply. And then at the end of it, I say, hey, guys, let me pray for you. And see those guys bow their heads and they're receiving prayer. I'm laying hands, you know, one o'clock in the morning on people. That's powerful. That's exciting. These are not people who are, we call seekers. These are people who in their own way are out there. They've got questions and they've found the answer. One o'clock, 12 o'clock, three o'clock in the morning on the streets. And you know what's incredible? We have 18-year-olds doing that, but we have 90-year-olds, 87-year-olds. Who go the, out. Who go out on the street to talk about Jesus and to care and listen to people. Incredible. Les, an absolute joy to have you on Facing the Canon. You are truly a hero of the faith. Thank you for joining us. Thank, thank you very much. I hope that has inspired you certainly has inspired me and uh, an encouragement for us to think not just about ourselves but about others and maybe that's prompted you to think hey I could do this so can I encourage you to explore about joining this incredible ministry out on the streets find out more thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon please join us again
No one is born a hero. They become one by repeatedly choosing to do what's heroic. Heroes of the Faith, Volume 2, J. John's brand new coffee table book, continues the testimonies of faith, sacrifice, love, generosity and perseverance found in Volume 1. Retelling 60 remarkable stories, including inspirational people such as Mahalia Jackson, Brother Andrew, Rasalama of Madagascar and David Wilkerson, we're reminded that the road to being a hero is to take heroic actions one step at a time. Heroes of the Faith, Volume 2, available now from jjohn.com and other bookshops.